Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. There we go. Um, a writer with an. I, by the way, I've been looking forward to reading this uh, this bio, so you'll you'll hear you'll hear why. A writer with an MFA in creative writing from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, Sarah Therese Rosenblum, freelances for publications and sites including the Chicago Sun Times and Pop Matters. Her fiction has appeared in literary magazines such as Kill Author and Underground Voices, and she was a 2012 winner of Carve Magazine's Esoteric Fiction Award. When not writing, Sarah supports ourselves as a figure model, spinning instructor, and creative writing teacher at Chicago's Story Studio. Inevitably, one day, she'll find herself lecturing naked on a spinning bike. Yeah. She's kind of looking forward to it, actually. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sarah. We'll, we'll have a very intimate experience tonight. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to be back at Skylight. And I say back because I used to live in Silver Lake from, I think, 2003 to 2006. And I would come here all the time. And I really loved it. And so I'm, I'm just excited to be here. So um, my book is Herself When She's Missing. And I'm going to just start at the beginning because it's nonlinear anyway. And if I started in the middle, it would be really confusing. <laughs> um, so here we go. Andrea's waiting for the Clark bus when she picks up Jordan's voicemail. Wind rushes in the background, wrestles Jordan for use of her phone. I know it's been a while, but I saw something you'll appreciate. I'm right behind a station wagon, getting on the 134, when the Serb in an SUV cuts me off. Tinted windows, drug lord for sure. The wagon's a few cars behind me now. Wait, I gotta pass some idiot doing 40 in the fast lane. Andrea spots the bus's comforting bulk a few blocks down, slouching through 5 p.m. traffic. She clenches her phone to her shoulder digs in her bag for fare. Sorry, Jordan's message continues. Anyway, the wagon has this great bumper sticker. Shit, let me remember it exactly. Okay, something like, the mother elephant was dying. No, wait, the mother elephant was drowning and the other elephant just stood there. Isn't that clever? Anyway, it made me think of you. Andrea clicks shut her phone and joins the line of shivering people boarding the bus. This is the first she's heard from Jordan since a year ago when she left for the second time. The criminal mastermind loves reality television. When pressed, she says she prefers The Bachelor, but with so many exciting options, she finds it hard to choose. She adores fish sticks, although she loathes seafood in any other form. Charmed by Keith Urban, Brad Paisley, she spends whole afternoons harmonizing to country music videos, sobbing into the couch's sturdy arm. The criminal mastermind has a name, of course. Andrea repeatedly traces its letters, so crucial in combination, so insignificant when taken alone. She hears the name in dreams and says it aloud in empty rooms, even guiltily imagines inking it onto her skin. 
Over the years, she spent more time with the name than with the woman it indicates, certainly has given it more thought than the criminal mastermind, who sometimes doesn't bother to respond when she's called. Andrea is the one who waters and feeds it. If possession is nine-tenths of the law, the name belongs to Andrea now. Deep into the night, the criminal mastermind lands for the second time on Andrea's doorstep. After a movie and two cab rides and hours of drastic sex, the kind that tears you down and rebuilds you, Andrea asks the criminal mastermind to say the name herself. Your name? The criminal mastermind repeats, still sliding her fingers smoothly in and out. Your name. Say it, please. The criminal mastermind falters. A gold medal athlete abruptly off her game. You want me to... I don't... What do you want? I want proof you're here with me. I want you to say your name. The criminal mastermind looks suspicious, but shrugs back into her role. Jordan, she says, eyes fixed. Again, Andrea whispers. Jordan, the criminal mastermind repeats, irritable this time, accelerating her thrusts. Again. Jordan slaps a palm over Andrea's mouth. Stop it. She works her other hand deeper and faster until nothing has meaning but fist against bone. Before Jordan resurrects their relationship, Andrea has two kinds of time in which to consider her. Actual time and abstract time, the second a product of the first. If Jordan were on an extended business trip, if she were doing research in Italy or opening a new McDonald's in Japan, if she were somewhere specific for a finite period, the time that pools around Andrea would feel circumscribed, discreet. But Jordan's absence is unbounded. With no reason to believe Jordan anything other than gone for good, Andrea's days widen and deepen. While everyone else dances lightly onward, wind rifling their careless calendars, Andrea sometimes doubts she'll make it through even a quarter hour. The criminal mastermind adores movies. They offer a whole cast of blank canvas characters, surfaces Jordan can scrawl across. Here are beautiful women she imagines winning, families whose fierce hidden love earns their redemption, a cartoon fish that finds his way home. No surprise, then. Upon her arrival in Chicago, the first words Jordan says are, a movie's just the thing. At the snack bar, the criminal mastermind orders popcorn with extra butter and, even though it costs four fifty, a box of Twizzlers as well. Jordan's unexpected reappearance has Andrea so thrown she doesn't recognize her own reflection in the smudged glass counter, but Jordan's as excited about the glassed-in gummy worms as she is to see Andrea. We gotta get some of these, she says. Right away, Andrea distances herself, thinking in three-by-five cards. The criminal mastermind. Snack addict. Broad-shouldered spendthrift. Answer to two years and one month's worth of prayer. Never happier than at the movies. Her mind snags on the oversimplification. The word happy fits the criminal mastermind like a pair of fat pants on an infomercial man finally at his target weight. Andrea occupies space, I'm sorry, Jordan occupies space inside the word, but barely makes contact with its seams. Andrea figures a correct term exists for everything, her responsibility to unearth it, which means she's constantly confronted with the space between the way things are and how she thinks they should be. Often when she attempts to define something, her mind circles back to a Sunday school memory in which she wears a red plaid jumper, which means she is four, learning how when God asked Adam to name all the animals, Adam simply pointed from gazelle to tree toad and defined each one. Inside her, the story rings, a shrill bell, she recognizes Adam's impulse, far off but familiar, as exactly right, and doesn't think to raise her hand, just stands and shouts, that's me, that's me. In this room, we wait our turn. The pastor's thin-lipped wife tightens her bony fingers around her pointer. Ashamed, Andrea clenches and unclenches her toes inside her tight Mary Janes. Sit down, the pastor's wife commands. Andrea squats and wraps her arms around her knees. Class, how do we sit in this room? The pastor's wife smiles before answering her own question. We don't crouch so boys can see our panties. We sit like good little Indian braves. 
Unmoving, Andrea sucks her fingers and stares at the pastor's wife, who says, bum on the floor, Andrea, you're taking up all of our time. Here, sweetie. Jenny, the pretty high school volunteer, puts a light hand on Andrea's shoulder, urging her to sit flat. Andrea wipes her fingers on her thick wool tights and gazes at Jenny's Barbie blonde hair glowing butter yellow from within. At the time, Andrea figures Jenny for an angel. Later, she understands the winter sun did all the work. When they first meet, nearly seven years ago, Andrea might call the criminal mastermind mysterious or misunderstood, some words starting with M and implying an interesting inaccessibility. Her best friend Rosalind calls the criminal mastermind Meshugana. Rosalind has no patience with the intangible. At 18, when Andrea unveils her burgeoning lesbianism, Rosalind dismisses it briskly. Now you'll waste even more time thinking about sex. Even though her desire for girls feels, at the time, like some sort of specialty appliance, too many confusing attachments, the directions written in Japanese, Andrea takes umbrage. I have just as much right to be gay as you do to be straight, she informs Rosalind. Rosalind taps ash from her cigarette. Obviously, she says. Just that the whole thing sounds like another excuse for you to navel gaze. Years later, when Andrea first takes up with the criminal mastermind and starts phoning Rosalind at midnight, Pacific time, 2 a.m. for Rosalind in Chicago, Rosalind is characteristically frank. She sounds like a lunatic kid. Rather than argue, Andrea retreats to her trusty mental safe house, her thoughts aging sentinels trudging a worn path through her brain. It's beyond embarrassing, the spacious home the criminal mastermind makes inside Andrea. She might as well be writing, if only daddy would buy me a chestnut brown pony, or Mrs. Andrea Elizabeth Wynne Timberlake in a pink plastic diary. The fact is she can't help herself. She continuously adds to her lists. Jordan and Bits, exterior, cruel, ocean-eyed, hair like an L-word extra, activities, drinking coffee, Luxuriant. She'll settle for French roast, but a 150-degree Starbucks venti americano is her beverage of choice. Stopping at Rite Aid. Intent on acquisition. Bottled water, remote-controlled cars, neti pots. She doesn't differentiate. Any exchange of cash for goods revs her up. Driving. Attentive, but at ease. No talking when Jordan is driving, unless Jordan initiates. More exterior. Traditional beauty, sloping cheekbones, full breasts, slim hips, hipless, Anglo, meets rough-hewn masculinity, swagger, harsh mouth, hands like a miniature man. Back to activities. Meeting new people, charming slash shifty, depends if the introduction is her idea or Andrea's. Sleeping, uninhibited, small, as, as if she remakes herself daily through willpower. When not focused, her continence transforms. Running. Gangly and uneven, lodged between puppy and adult, paws too big for body, ears at half-mast, at the movies, unencumbered, maybe free. After two years devoted to thoughts of Jordan, years uninterrupted by Jordan's actual presence, Andrea ought to be capable of pigeonholing the feeling she gets when Jordan returns. Then again, it isn't herself she studied. Also, it's one thing to think about Jordan, another to sit beside her, to dig her figures into a jumbo box of popcorn just one seat over from pure evil. The criminal mastermind is a thief and a man-hater. On these faults, Andrea is clear. In the months after they first meet, as their liaison accelerates, the criminal mastermind borrows her girlfriend's car, and they fly over hills and through canyons, the best parts of Los Angeles complicit in their affair. Once at the foot of Runyon Canyon, fingers probing Andrea's open fly, the criminal mastermind pauses too long as a traffic light flips from red to green. Behind them, a silver Mustang, shark squat and glistening, honks its indignation. The criminal mastermind takes one look back and puts the car in park. 
Fingers still inside Andrea, she smiles pleasantly as horns bray and cars pull around them. The Mustang driver, bearded, Armenian maybe, stubbornly flushed to their bumper. Be right back. She flings open her door, leaving Andrea drift in the churning sea of traffic. Andrea watches the criminal mastermind yell through the driver's open window. If only you'd been more patient, you wouldn't have missed your light. The driver brandishes his fist, a living cliche, and Andrea laughs once like a cough as the criminal mastermind slips back into the car. Did you hear what that asshole said? Andrea shakes her head, buttons her pants. The criminal mastermind attempts an accent, produces something Indian and Russian, a little German thrown in. My friend, she says, you are a motherfucker and probably a lesbian. She takes off with a squeal, squeal as the light turns green. Andrea wonders just what tugs a memory to the surface at a particular moment. She sometimes experiences the standard event memory chain reaction. For example, walking to the L in Chicago, she bites into an apple, recalls Rosalind's visit to LA, a four-day break for Andrea from writing her dissertation, driving to Venice Beach, Rosalind's sleek hair teetering on cork wedges fits in perfectly even on the West Coast, snapping a photo of Andrea in an apple green sundress, crunching on a Granny Smith the exact shade. But often, memories that shouldn't be on speaking terms come to Andrea like spooning lovers, arms and legs entangled, impossible to unwind. The Mustang memory, for instance, seeks resolutely into a second unrelated recollection. Jordan, in Andrea's Westwood apartment in the early months of their first affair. On her back on the living room floor, the criminal mastermind whispers into Andrea's hair, I want you to know everything about me, even if it makes me ashamed. I've never wanted that before, but I know you won't judge me. You're too sweet. You take me as I am. Patricia's not like that. I'm not myself with her. I'm on my best behavior. This morning, she made me go all the way to the bathroom just so she could show me the wet towel I'd left by the tub. If you love someone, why does it matter where she leaves her towels? Andrea glances at the criminal mastermind's belongings, seeping from her open suitcase, puddled on the floor. Jordan's question, out of context, would seem boorish, but Jordan asks it like a child. Upon her arrival a day earlier, Patricia away on business, Andrea's apartment was poised in particular, not an item out of place. Now her off-white carpet is visible only in patches, heaped with layers of clothing, half-empty takeout cartons, and DVDs Jordan thinks Andrea has to see. That Jordan's whirlwind dislodges her possessions, her careful order, her lists, make and makes Andrea feel somehow at Jordan's mercy, a faceted feeling, untethered, dreamy, secure. Sure, cleanliness matters, Andrea thinks, touching the heather-soft skin that girds the criminal mastermind's ribcage, but so does passion. There's more to life than an orderly house, Andrea says. You make me feel safe, Jordan traces Andrea's clavicle. From what, Andrea wonders. So do you, she says. I've done stuff you can't imagine. The criminal mastermind continues smiling, stuff you'd never do. The thing is, I issue my own paychecks. That's kind of an oversight, right? If the church were a company, I'd never have that freedom. There'd be rules to keep someone in my position under control. Stop telling me this, Andrea thinks, and wait, tell me more. It started when the old pastor went on a four-week vacation. Andrea pictures a man in a clerical collar on water skis at that ice hotel in Finland, standing, arms folded, the Grand Canyon at his back. He left me in charge of the checks, then he was transferred. We had some Latino guy in the interim who didn't know his ass from his elbow, probably a child molester. He never even glanced at payroll. I'm planning on paying it back. I just got a little ahead. She kisses Andrea's ear. We have about 10 check signers, people in the congregation. Every week I print out duplicate checks, have one person sign one, a different person sign another, so I get paid twice, but see, I'm not forging anything, so it's not a federal crime. I'm going to stop, though. You make me want to be better. It's like Jesus preached. Love and acceptance pave the way for change. Jordan's mouth at Andrea's ear. 
the hush of breath against her cheek. These sensations blot out Jordan's confession. Andrea can't hold on to both at once. Later, too much later, she will deconstruct Jordan while Jordan's inside her. Right now, though, they're just too new. That's it. That's my story for you. I can take questions if you want, or I can leave also, that would work. <laughs> questions would be great. So how did the whole postcard thing come about? Um, the lists and everything? Yeah. So, you know, it was just natural to Andrea's voice for me. Like, it, I've, I've been asked sort of, was I doing that to be purposely postmodern or whatever? <laughs> but I absolutely wasn't. I, I think in lists a little bit. Um, so there's some of that. But um, it really felt like it just came to me sort of whole cloth as Andrea's voice. Okay. Yeah. That's why. The screenplay stuff too is partly because she's a film major, so that was sort of like the way she thinks. So I felt like that would be conducive to her, her voice. Yeah. I missed the beginning part, of it, so I'm not quite sure. If Don't worry about it. But how long of a process has this been for you? Uh, writing it. Yeah. Um. I started writing it when I was in graduate school in, I guess, May of 2008. And I think I thought I was finished by sometime 2010. And then I really was finished by later in 2010. So it was actually, it was actually, I think, fairly quick. Um, yeah. And then I sort of was querying agents while, and then realized, wait, no, I'm not done. And then kind of finished and then went back to doing that. So, yeah. So a bit of a journey. Yeah. I mean, not... I mean, you hear about people slaving for like decades, which did not happen for me, so that's nice. Um, right, and I kind of question, like there's, there's a guy who, Jesse Ball, who maybe you've heard of, I think he's been in the Paris Review, and he taught at my um, graduate school, and he talked about writing a novel in a weekend, and I was like, how does that work? For real? I don't know. Yeah, right, I don't know. Like, carpal tunnel and hand cramps is what I'm thinking. I don't know. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah. Uh, when you finished in 2010, well, you thought you'd finished, and then you realized that you hadn't. What made you realize that you hadn't? It was interesting. Um, I think that, for me, I need time away from a project sometimes to realize it isn't exactly where I thought it was. So I think I had sort of, I started querying, and I kind of took a break from writing it. And I had one reader who was reading it for me. and. I sort of came to this at the same time as she came to this, like that there was, there was some sort of bits that I, and this happens I think, like when I, I talk to my students about this too, that often you don't write the parts that are most necessary for some reason, and there were scenes that were really important that they be in this book that I sort of thought I could not write. Like, not that I didn't think I could write, I just sort of thought, oh, they, they can happen off screen, but that's not really so. And so I think through talking with her, we sort of realized that. And what was interesting about that was one of the agents, the agent who ended up being my agent, who I queried, had the exact same notes for me that she came back with, like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in this, but. And I was like, yep, same place. So, so that worked out. Yeah. Other questions? Okay, good. Thank right. you very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for showing up. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.